On the 4th of October, 1943, Bing Crosby recorded a Christmas song which immediately reached the top 10 and stayed there for 11 weeks. And in the process, it became an American Christmas tradition, as much a part of Christmas as trees and turkey. The following year, 1944, it reached number 19 on the charts, uh, but it was the most played song among American troops who by that time were in the depths of World War II out in the South Pacific. In December 1965, America was in the middle of another adventure, this time the American space program. Uh, The Americans had launched the Gemini 7 spacecraft and it had set a record for the longest space flight. And as they hurtled back to Earth on board Gemini 7, the two astronauts, Frank Borman and James Lovell, were asked by NASA if they had any particular music that they wanted on re-entry and they chose this song. Uh, this song has been recorded by Barbara Streisand, Dolly Parton, Anne Murray, The Beach Boys, Bernie M, Pat Boo, Michael Bublé, The Carpenters, Doris Day, Neil Diamond, Placido Domingo, Gloria Estefan, Amy Grant, Josh Groban, Whitney Houston, D. Martin, Frank Sinatra, and countless other artists. It is, of course, the song, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And I thought I'll try and play this. This is the king, Elvis himself, singing one of the most popular songs uh, of Christmas. Only Elvis Presley could get five syllables out of the word love. That must, that must be some kind of record. I'll Be Home for Christmas, one of the most popular Christmas songs ever. It's even popular here in South Africa, which is weird because we don't have mistletoe or snow. But I think the reason that that song is so popular all over the world is because of one little word. It's the word home. It's such an evocative word in our vocabulary. I mean, you can say the word presence and tree and mistletoe and not get any reaction at all, but as soon as you say the word 
home, something stirs within our hearts. For some of us, it produces a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. We can't wait to get home from church and have Christmas Day lunch with our family because everyone seated around the Christmas table is a model of spirituality and emotional maturity. I'm taking names. <laughs> for, for others, the word produces feelings that aren't as pleasant. We speak about broken homes, homes that include abuse or separation. And there are some folk here this morning who have no place to call home. And so for some of us, there is an, an ache in our hearts when we hear the word home. But in fact, I want to suggest that there is an ache for all of us, because no matter how wonderful our homes are, there's always a gap, isn't there? There's a gap between the home that we have and the home that we long for. And actually, there is an ache in our soul, because there is a longing for home inside of us that no home in this world can ever satisfy. And so I want to spend a few moments talking about home I want to speak about the very first home. I want to talk about why none of us are home, why we're all homesick, why we have this ache. I want to talk about what it means to be at home with God. And then I want to give you an opportunity, if you've never done so before, to come home to God today. The very first home that we read of in the Bible is found right in the beginning in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. We read how God creates Adam and Eve to be in his family. By the way, what did Adam say to Eve on the night before Christmas? It's Christmas, Eve. But you know the story. God gave Adam and Eve complete freedom to do as they wanted in this beautiful world that he'd created. He gave them only one rule. Don't eat the fruit of that tree over there. But they disobeyed God. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to live in God's world without reference to God. And so we read about the first broken home. Instead of walking with God in the cool of the evening as they had always done, Adam and Eve hide from God, having disobeyed his command. And instead of enjoying an intimate relationship as husband and wife, we see Adam and Eve blaming one another, fighting with one another. Man's relationship with man is broken, and man's relationship with God is broken. And we read how Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and they go out of the east gate of the Garden of Eden. Men and women take their very first step away from God. That word east is so important. It's not so much a place as it is a state. Uh, in English, we talk about things going south, um, but in the Bible, that same idea is captured by the word east. East is away from God. East is a place where you're not at home with God. East is the absence of God. In the very next chapter, we're introduced to Adam and Eve's two ch children, Cain and Abel, and we read how they fall out. And Cain is angry with his brother Abel, ironically over a worship service. Abel's offering is uh, accepted while Cain's is not. And so Genesis chapter 4, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
the very first time that human blood is spilled on the earth. And God comes to Cain and he asks, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Notice the punishment. You'll be a wanderer. You'll have no place to call home. And then we read in verse 16, fascinating words. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is taking another step in the same direction as his parents. He's going east, further away from God's presence. Not only does he head east, but in verse 17 we find him building a city, trying to put down roots away from God, trying desperately to find a place to call home, but without God. The exact same pattern is repeated in Genesis 11. This is after the flood, after God has tried to start the whole human project over again with Noah and his family. But even after such a huge disaster, people still haven't learned anything at all. In Genesis 11, we read this. As men moved eastward, they found a place in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole earth. It's exactly the same pattern. Men and women moving eastward, away from God, trying desperately but fruitlessly to find a home without God. Perhaps the most important thing about these stories is not so much that they happened, but that they happen. That we have this longing for home within us, but we head east, away from God, and we try and live our lives without any reference to him. And what happens? Life fragments. And instead of being at peace with God, we find ourselves in conflict with God and in conflict with our fellow men and women. Some of us pack our bags and set our compasses to go east, and some of us just kind of drift there. Uh, The British journalist and novelist Claire Rayner entitled her autobiography, How Did I Get Here From There? And sometimes when we look at our own lives, we ask the same question, How did I get here from there? This isn't where I intended to be. John Ortberg is an American pastor, and in one of his books he writes about something of his own experience of this, and it's easier for me to quote him than to talk about my own life this morning. He says, I'm disappointed with myself. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. When I look in on my children as they sleep at night, I think of the kind of father I want to be. I want to create moments of magic I want them to remember laughing until the tears flow. I want to read to them and make the books come alive so they love to read. I want to have slow, sweet talks with them as they're getting ready to close their eyes. I want to sing them awake in the morning. I want to chase fireflies with them, teach them to play tennis, have food fights and hold them and pray for them in a way that makes them feel cherished. I look in on them as they sleep at night and I remember how the day really went. 
I remember how my daughter spilled cherry punch at dinner and I yelled at her about being careful as if she'd revealed some deep character flaw. I yelled at her even though I spill things all the time and no one yells at me. I yelled at her to tell the truth simply because I'm big and she's little and I can get away with it. And then I saw that look of hurt and confusion in her eyes and I knew there was a tiny wound on her heart that I'd put there and I wished I could have taken those 60 seconds back. I remember how at night I didn't have slow, sweet talks, but merely rushed the children to bed so I could have more time for myself. I'm disappointed. And it's not just my life as a father. I'm disappointed also for my life as a husband, friend, neighbor, and human being in general. I think of the day I was born, when I carried the gift of promise, the gift given to all babies. I think of that little baby and what might have been, the ways I might have developed mind and body and spirit, the thoughts I might have had, the joy I might have created. These are just some of the disappointments. I have other ones, darker ones, that I'm not ready yet to commit to paper. The truth is I'm embarrassingly sinful. Sometimes, although I am aware of how far I fall short, it doesn't even bother me very much, and I'm disappointed at my lack of disappointment. Where does this disappointment come from? A common answer in our day is that it's a lack of self-esteem, a failure to accept oneself. The older and wiser answer is that the feeling of disappointment is not the problem, but a reflection of a deeper problem, my failure to be the person God had in mind when he created me. It's the pearly ache in my heart to be at home with the Father. But the theme of men and women headed away from God is not the only theme in the Bible. In fact, the rest of the Bible can really be described as an account of God's continuous attempt to get humankind back to himself. Even in the stories that we've just looked at, Now, after Adam and Eve sinned and moved away from God, we read that God goes looking for them. He arrives at their regular evening walk, but Adam and Eve aren't there. They're hiding. And we read that God cries out, Adam, where are you? Do you think that an all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present God didn't know which bush Adam was hiding behind? Of course God knew where they were. It wasn't a question. It was an invitation an invitation for Adam and Eve to come back home. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we see how God calls and calls. He calls through the prophets. Just to take one small example, God says to his people through the prophet Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they didn't realize it was I who healed them. God says, in effect, I remember when we were at home and I taught you how to walk. God calls to the people through the priests. Uh, Although God fills the universe, he sets apart a special place, the tabernacle, later the temple where he'd meet with his people. One of the interesting things about the temple is that, that it faced east. In other words, when you went to worship God, when you met with God, you were heading west, back towards God. But God didn't stop with the prophets and the priests. 
After years of calling men and women back to himself and largely being ignored, God made a decision, I'll go down there myself. And so for 33 years, God walked this planet in the person of Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this morning. In the Gospel of John, John says, The Word, God, became flesh and made his dwelling, his home among us. The phrase literally means he set up his tent. You know, if you come into a community and you build a massive wall with a great big electric fence and spikes on it, it says something about your desire for community. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, we're probably going to have a lot of interaction. You'll probably be using my bathroom and I'll be seeing you in my kitchen. God wants to be on familiar terms with us. He comes down, way down, to be with us. Jesus spent three years of his life intentionally calling us back to himself through his teaching. One of Jesus' most famous stories, uh, if people know anything about the Gospels, it's probably this story. Jesus said, this is what it's like to come back to God. He said a father had two sons. And the youngest son said to his dad, Dad, I want my part of the inheritance now. I can't wait for you to die. Give me the cash. And then he put as much distance between himself and his dad as humanly possible. He went to a distant country and there wasted his dad's money on hard liquor and easy woman. He lost every penny. And then he got into trouble. There was an economic downturn of note. And this son ended up feeding pigs. He was so hungry that even the pig's food began to look good to him. And then the son thought to himself, you know something, even my dad's servants eat better than this. I think I'll go back to my dad and I'll apologize and I'll say to him, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me just like one of your servants. And so he headed back home. But Jesus says while it took a long time for the son to turn his thoughts back to his father, he'd never been outside of his father's thoughts. Each day his dad had looked towards the eastern horizon. And then one day there he was, his son, a speck in the distance. And the father ran to meet him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son tried to give his prepared speech. <clears throat> father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But he his dad wouldn't even let him finish. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now home. And Jesus says that's what it's like when we turn our hearts back to God. Jesus taught about what it meant to come back to God, and then he did something even more remarkable. He made the way open for you and I to come back to God. All of my disappointment, all of my darkness, all of the stuff in my life that I don't want others to know about, all of my rebellious acts and thoughts and words, Jesus took them upon himself on the cross. He took the punishment I deserved. He died the death I should have died. And because no one can ever ask for two payments for the same debt, I'm declared not guilty. And what Jesus did for me, he did for every human being on the planet. The barrier of our sin is taken away, and Jesus says, in effect, come home. 
In the book of Genesis, we read about the first home. But on the last page of the Bible, Revelation 21, we get a picture of the final home. The Apostle John writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the home of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. But there's one more passage of scripture I'd like us to look at this morning. It's so important to realize that Christianity isn't about pie in the sky when you die by and by. Let me read to you from John 14, which is a strange reading for Christmas Day. We normally read it at funerals. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. That's speaking about the future of finally being home with God. But a few verses later, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And it's the same word in both verses, rooms and home. In other words, being home with God isn't about being with him in heaven one day. Being at home with God is a quality of life right here and right now that continues on into eternity. God offers us the most intimate friendship with himself. We will make our home with her, with him. It's a relationship that then changes everything. Our lives are never the same again. But God gives us our lives back better than the lives that we'd planned for ourselves. And so let me ask you this morning, are you home for Christmas? Are you home with God? Are you in a foreign country, miles away from home? Are you at a distance, perhaps halfway down the road, heading towards home? Are you in the front garden, looking in through the window? Are you in the kitchen, desperately doing the dishes, trying to make the home owner comfortable and happy with you? Or are you sat in an armchair at the fire with a cup of coffee, opposite a much bigger armchair at the other side of the fire, speaking with your father who loves you, who created you, who sent his son to die for you, who has done everything necessary to bring you back home. Let's pray together.